The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sportbox. So a positive week for Wall Street as optimism over a short-term debt ceiling deal trumps a disappointing jobs report with the U.S. economy creating far fewer non-farm payrolls jobs than expected. Global leaders reach a landmark deal agreeing a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15% after years of disagreement. Elsewhere, oil continues to gain as energy demand rises, with WTI now breaking $80 a barrel to its highest level since late 2014. But gas prices fall. Uh, British industry leaders, though, warning of potential shutdowns unless the government steps in. Meanwhile, a bit of confusion in the UK government. The business secretary stopped short of guaranteeing no disruptions to consumers this winter. Right across the world, uh, real supply chain pressures. You've seen the Chinese have uh, power blackouts, they're rationing uh, supply. Here in the UK, our job is to make sure there's minimal disruption, and I'm very confident. My Twan shares soar as it's handed a smaller than expected fine for abusing its market position. And as China's central bank governor warns, there'll be no let up in the crackdown on monopolies. A warm welcome this uh, Monday morning. We should kick you off on these non-farm payrolls numbers uh, and have a little bit of a chat about uh, how the market's going to digest them. But first, the details. The U.S. economy adding just 194,000 jobs in September. That missed expectations. The unemployment rate dropped to a better-than-expected 4.8% while wage growth continued to tick higher. The weaker-than-expected report raises some questions now about the state of the U.S. economy as the Fed looks to begin tapering bond purchases. We're speaking to CNBC. The U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said vaccinations are key to rebuilding the economy. What we need is employers to do mandates individuals to go get vaccinated. We need, you know, 90 plus percent of folks vaccinated. Once that happens, it'll, the economy will be better. People will be safer. People will feel comfortable going back to work. It just takes the guesswork out of it. We want to get the guesswork out of it. Everyone ought to be vaccinated. And let me pick up on that line. She said, you want to take the guesswork out of it. Well, unfortunately, this hasn't taken the guesswork out of the tapering conversation it seems to me now because the expectation I think was that we were just going to continue to see the data points build to a stage where Jay Powell ultimately had no choice and the and the uh, committee would turn around and say look you know we've had economic recovery here the rebound is firm we need to embark now on tapering. Um, the problem is that the half-decent uh, payrolls report that Jay Powell was anticipating, maybe this wasn't it. I know you've got a slightly different view to what we've uh, said so far in the uh, headlines, but this gives the bulls a reason to get enthusiastic about a slower pace of tapering. tapering. And I think ultimately it gives Jay Powell and the Fed 
a get-out-of-jail card to say, we push this now into 2022. And the fact that we saw the 10-year Treasury up to one spot six and more, and the fact that we now have a, what, nearly three-year high for the dollar against the yen, all of these, it seems to me, are reasons just to slow the pace for the time being of the narrative around tapering. But we'll wait, we'll watch, we'll see what happens. But for those who still think there's some life left in this equity market, I think it will encourage them to believe that the the Fed, at least, is not going to stop the momentum. Yeah, well, for a start, the dollar did nothing last week. It was 0.07 of a percent moved, I think it was. In fact, that's exactly what it did on the week. So the dollar didn't move on the back of the data, net-net for the week as well. Secondly, 160 is not a high level on US Treasuries, given everything thrown at the market, given the fact that we were 177 back at the, in the, the spring of, of this year as well. So I, I don't think the dollar's going gangbusters on the back of it. I don't think the Treasuries are seeing a massive sell-off on the back of it, albeit I would note, of course, that we did get down to, what, 125, 130 on the yield on the 10 year. Now we're back up to 161, which I think is a lot more practical as well. Uh, I don't th- agree that they were. Ba- this was bad data. I actually think the first figure, which people who trade on the first number out of the payrolls, they often get it very, very wrong. I thought the revisions were very positive for the month of August, up to 366,000 jobs created. Mm-hmm. And I think you've wonderfully, to suit your argument, <laughs> I guess I'm picking for a fight here. Sure. Uh, um, you, you completely skirted over the AHE. And I, I know you briefly mentioned mm-hmm. it. The average hourly earnings are dramatic. Let's get this right. The non-farm payroll headline figure of 194,000 was mediocre at best. I cannot disagree with you. But average hourly earnings were up 0.6 of 1% to an annual increase of 4.6%. Over the last six months, job um, wages are showing an annualized 6% gain. Leisure and hospitality up a half a percent on the month, mm. so that the year-on-year increase is 10.8%. Retail wages, the year-on-year increase is 6.2%. These are very big numbers. Oh, and by the way, the unemployment rate is down as low as 4.8%. And where did we see the disappointing figure? We saw it in local government education, which shed 144,000 employees. Now, I'm sorry for those jobs lost. I'm sorry for every job loss. But that is not the driver of the US economy. Karen Cho, good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Funnily enough, I'm not a million miles away from you on the position. I did think there was some heat in the numbers. And if you look at prior months of revision up as well, the headline number could be adjusted down the track. And if you look at some of the underlying elements there, there was enough in it potentially for central banks that have been looking to try and adjust the taper program. I mean, as you point out, what you saw, the, the prime month there, but also the wages, that's very key at this point. As we talk about the margin compression, that's going to be a very big issue for the markets in coming weeks as profit reporting season kicks off what that margin erosion looks like because you've got higher wages coming into the mix and higher input costs. And clearly through this report, we're looking at that higher wages component. So there's a little bit of it there. But also when it comes to certain segments of the market, that leisure and hospitality segment, you didn't have 
that many jobs created, relatively speaking. It's still telling you that there might be an issue in recruiting some of those workers, which is why you're seeing the wage prices or the pressure on wages and why some of them are going up. Uh, that's a concern, I think, for parts of the market. I mean, there was a story also over the weekend about some of the big retail companies in the United States having to hire their own ships to try and uh, move product across the world. This is in contrast to what they've done previously and adds to the costs on various different sides here as we talk about U.S. consumption through the big retail stores and also through the hospitality side, you are seeing still this bottleneck in production issue that has the potential to drive up prices and put pressure on inflation. So I did think it was interesting to see that market behavior where after a week where you had gains on the stock market, by Friday, everybody just hit the sidelines with this number and it was really just the bond market that went for it uh, with a slightly higher range on the US 10-year yield. So I think uh, the data this will could be fascinating that the jobs report, a jolts report rather, will be closely watched as will the commentary from the C-suite on those bottlenecks and just how long it will take to correct them. Um, yeah, no, I can't disagree with too much of, of what you've said there, but I will come back because I think the the bit um, uh, that we do need to keep an eye on is the dollar, really. Um, the issue for the Fed is that the workforce ultimately is still smaller than it was pre-pandemic, so there's still room for recovery. By what, 7.7 million 2%, jobs? Yeah, 2% it's a decent smaller. chunk of jobs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there is still uh, room here for the economy to recover, for those job openings to be filled. The challenge at this stage, as we know, is, is partly one to do with the pandemic. But the fear, I think, at this point must be the confluence of a stronger dollar and higher prices really risks choking off demand. And I think one of the challenges for the Fed here is, is not just the jobs numbers. It's when you look at all the data in the round, you've got very weak consumer confidence numbers now that are starting to come through and raise some issues about how people are feeling about their near-term economic well-being. And I think when you get to a stage where people are reflecting on whether I buy this or this, but not both of those items, then I think you have to start to be a little bit concerned about what happens Q4, Q1. So just a quick I mean, word I think on the Goldman dollar. Sachs has revised down their growth forecast again they do for the move, US economy. They do wing around quite a lot, though, those yes, estimates, yes, dare I say. But, but I mean, they, they've done it. So, so the dollar index is weaker. up 4.6% year mm. on year as well. Yeah. What is that telling us? Because at times the dollar is a safe haven. At times, historically, where we used yeah. to have interest rates, it was a carry trade very often we would look at as well. Yeah. But what is the dollar telling us now up 4.6% year on year? I don't think it's clear. I think it could be because uh, it's perceived as a safe haven at a time where we have some tricky geopolitical issues. We have some economies in the East that have been very slow in getting on board with the vaccination programs and are still grappling with uh, effectively first and second waves of COVID. It could tell us that the market is already moving in expectation of the Fed shifting from this ultra uh, easy monetary policy. There are all sorts of reasons yeah. why it could be moving, but I, I don't think it's clear. But the fact that it is moving means that for anybody around the world that has to buy commodities priced in dollars, it's getting very expensive. It is getting very expensive, as we see in the United Kingdom as well. Yeah. Hey, have you seen the euro dollar trading 115.71? What happened about the great euro recovery? 
It's down 5.25%, by the way, year on year versus yeah. the dollar. No, no, no. Interesting. Uh, I, I've got to move on. John's absolutely oh. apoplectic at the moment. I've just, I'm just looking at my dollar crosses oh. now. It's absolutely fascinating. Worst performer against the dollar, against the major currencies? Go on. Turkish lira, down 21% over wow. the last year. Oh, year to date, I should say. Right, okay, there you go. Dollar crosses, 115.71 on euro dollars. Well, let's move on to the Asian markets. Um, fascinating action going on in Hong Kong, actually. Some uh, big rally going on, I believe. Uh, let's take a look at some of these. The Hang Seng, uh, currently trading up 553 points. No, not a surprise to anyone, apparently. 2.2% higher is where it's currently trading. Uh, that is where the Asian markets, there we go, we got there eventually. 2.2% uh, higher. Um, the Nikkei also moving up by around 1.6%. Current tax deal. Yeah, let's talk about the exciting word tax this morning as the OECD has agreed the global tax deal that will see large businesses pay a minimum rate of 15%. The pact signed by 136 nations is set to collect an extra $150 billion for governments around the world each year. The OECD Secretary General, Matthias Cormann, called the move a major victory for balanced multilateralism. The French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, said the deal will make sure big corporates make fair contributions. This agreement opens the way to a true tax revolution for the 21st century. It's a tax revolution because we won't go back. It's a tax revolution because it creates more justice in terms of taxation. Finally, the digital giants will pay their just share in taxes in the countries, including France, where they profit. Well, let's get out to Sylvia for more. Sylvia, it's a big headline, but always a detail underlying stories like this. How long will the implementation be and what about some of the standards still? Absolutely. The big focus now is how will this be implemented, in particular in the United States, whether the Biden administration will manage to get approval from Congress on this theme. And actually, I was reading a note on Sunday from Unicredit saying that the U.S. is actually the biggest beneficiary from this agreement. So perhaps that will help Joe Biden and his team to get uh, approval for this agreement. Um, but indeed, there's a big question mark. But when you actually look at the details from this agreement, as you mentioned, 136 countries have signed up. So that is quite significant in itself. Um, and what this deal does is, on the one hand, it will force multi nationals to pay tax wherever they're operating, pretty much, not just where they have a physical presence. And that in itself is meant to relocate 125 billion US dollars from around 100 multi multinationals, I should say, to countries worldwide. And then on the other hand, this deal, as you mentioned as well, imposes a minimum rate of 15%. And some countries, namely the United States, would have wanted to see a higher rate there. But the compromise ended up being 15 in order to bring countries such as Ireland and Hungary on board. And then a final point on digital taxation, because this deal was actually um, came because the United States also wanted to fix this issue over digital taxation. Uh, as you remember, there were some trade spats between the EU and the US over this theme. And thanks to this uh, global tax deal at the OECD, now there's an agreement on the table as well that means that countries that have indeed digital taxes will stop them and instead implement this uh, global corporate tax deal. So countries such as France and Britain have said that from 2023 onwards, those digital taxes will not be applied and indeed they will be um, essentially if effectively implementing the corporate minimum tax rate of 15%. So that was also welcome from the United States, guys.
Terrific. Thank you so much, Sylvia. The IMF's executive board met on Sunday to weigh accusations of data rigging against managing director Kristalina Gorgieva during her time as CEO of the World Bank. A law firm claims Gorgieva pushed staff to boost China's business rating in 2017. The IMF board says it has made significant progress and will wrap up its deliberations very soon. The allegations have cast a shadow over the IMF's week-long meeting with the World Bank, which starts later today. Coming up on the show, both WTI and Brent now trading above $80 per barrel as the rally continues. More on this after the break. And stay up to date with how September's disappointing headline jobs number could weigh on the Fed's taper timeline by subscribing to the Squawk Box podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Oil prices continue to rally with WTI joining Brent to trade above $80 per barrel for the first time since 2014. Now, this is energy demand continues to grow amid the recovery from the pandemic, but also as price spikes elsewhere in the energy complex and coal and gas prices make oil more attractive. Let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, we're already talking about the elevated price when Brent soared above $80 per barrel the other week and what that could mean in terms of demand destruction. Now, as WTI also pops its head above 80, what does this mean in a global context as we talk about a recovery? Well, Karen, the heat is absolutely on in the markets and oil prices are extending multi-week gains now, as you pointed out, crossing above 80 US dollars a barrel in Asian trade earlier this morning. So the energy crunch really showing no signs of abating, at least for now. And when you look back at the track record here of WTI, in fact, now up seven straight weeks and also tracking at around a seven-year high. Brent also hitting a three-year high last week. And of course, we saw the weakening US dollar on the back of the non-farm payroll miss on Friday, which helped to give crude that little extra boost. So what we see here is the supply restraint from major OPEC plus producers and recovering demands for crude through the recovery, really helping to push oil up, up around 60% so far this year, in fact. And as you know, natural gas has also been surging off the back of this too. Uh, We saw the benchmark Dutch TFF hub natural gas price also hitting record highs last week. And that's because demand for heating fuel is ramping up as it starts to cool down. And the energy price surge is also adding to investor concerns over building inflationary pressures. And I know this is something that you've been discussing on the show for the past several weeks now. Uh, Those inflationary pressures could put the economic recovery at risk. And those concerns are also rising with oil above 80 US dollars. So regarding the policy response and what could potentially happen next year, well, there are calls for the US government to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We know OPEC Plus is also being called upon to turn on the taps. And over in the UK, as you've been reporting today, the government says it is working to find ways to support 
those hardest hit energy intensive industries. What those conversations actually look and sound like remains to be seen though, certainly some confusion about exactly what's happening on the ground. And in the gas markets, well, it's Russia that has really emerged as kingmaker here. And a report in the FT this morning says that the Kremlin's ambassador to the EU has called for stronger ties between Europe and Russia to avoid future gas shortages. So geopolitics coming into play here. And he also rejected suggestions that Russia has had a hand to play in Europe's gas crunch and added that he expects Gazprom to respond to President Putin's instructions to adjust output and to give Europe what it needs. And of course, we're going to be leading the conversation on that later on in the week with our interview with President Putin. Of course, he is going to be asked about exactly how Russia is going to respond and what Gazprom can do to ease some of the uh, price concerns that we see in the natural gas market. So watch this space. Really important week for the energy markets coming up, guys. Back over to you for now. Terrific. Dan, thank you very much indeed for that. Well, let's stick with the theme. British industry leaders warning the UK government they may have to close production if the ongoing gas price spike is left, uh, well, with, without any assistance for them, basically. The heads of the steel, glass, paper and ceramic sectors have called on the government to address the situation. Quite what they expect the government to do, apart from offer them a subsidy, I'm not quite sure. But after the meeting with uh, Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng on Friday, they uh, offered these appeals. Meanwhile, energy supply of Pure Planet is close to collapse, according to Sky News. A decision on the BP-backed company could come as early as this week. Speaking to our sister station, Sky News, Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng stopped short of guaranteeing there won't be disruption to gas supplies for consumers this winter. This is a global issue. So we've seen right across the world uh, real supply chain pressures You've seen the Chinese have uh, power blackouts, they're rationing uh, supply. Here in the UK, our job is to make sure there's minimal disruption, and I'm very confident. I can say that there are two things that are elements here. One is obviously the global price, and I can't predict, nobody can predict that. But one thing that I am responsible for is the resilience of the UK system, and in that, uh, I'm very confident that we will be resilient. Hedge funds that bet on oil and gas during an ESG-spurred institutional rush to the exits are reaping the benefits as energy prices surge. Our next guest says investors don't realise, quote, how much money you can make in things that people hate. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, Josh Young is the co-founder and CIO of Bison Interest. Good morning to you, Josh. Very nice to see you, sir. Um, do people hate oil and gas then? Is that, is that the idea? And you're long of it, I presume. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we own oil and gas stocks. Uh, mostly in the U.S. and Canada, and yeah, people um, people really dislike them, and the industry is being underinvested in, and uh, this energy crisis that we're seeing is kind of the natural response um, to underinvestment. And as you spend less on a commodity, you end up having to spend more as a consumer to buy that commodity. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head in many ways, Josh. But the companies themselves need to have. Uh, a large amount of R&D and not just in hydrocarbons, but of course, a lot of these oil companies are now energy companies and looking at broader sources of energy as well. And one of the reasons why so many investors hate them is not because they have oil and gas, is they've got to spend so much of that brilliant cash return from oil and gas uh, on new sources of energy to, to meet their climate commitments as well. So therein lies the rub that a lot of that cash flow doesn't end up with shareholders, does it? 
Well, uh, we can choose which uh, oil and gas companies we invest in at Bison. And so we're focused on companies that are not uh, reallocating their shareholders' capital to those sorts of R&D ventures, like you're saying. And our companies are more focused on either drilling for oil and gas or on returning capital via share buybacks or dividends. Good morning to you. I'm just jumping in around some of the positioning and there was a report that Goldman Sachs had seen the most net buying by hedge funds in the energy sector since late February. But this is not necessarily a crowd that everybody wants to run with, a very nimble crowd and maybe one not necessarily committed to energy stocks and uh, energy futures over the, the long term either. How concerned should investors be about the flip side of this when some of the heat comes out of the oil and energy market? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd look at kind of what's happening in Europe right now, where the cheapest power prices in Europe are in Poland, where uh, most of their power is coming from coal power plants. And so I think we might actually be at an inflection point where the narrative is shifting uh, from uh, sustainable investment from an environmental perspective to investment in reliable sources of power and fuel. And so I, I think I'm a little less worried about that and a little more worried about there being sufficient energy supplies to keep people cold and or not cold uh, this winter. When you look globally at some big energy players, do you see a clear difference now? I mean, we used to talk about banks in the day, uh, the difference between US and European peers and how the American ones were better placed. But when it comes to energy, we know that there's been an enormous push by European energy players to try and progress towards ESG. So do you see any clear differences between the two sides of the pond? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's necessarily between like the Exxons and the Shells. I think in kind of both of those cases uh, and, and those sorts of companies, uh, there's such a strong push and there's been kind of uh, voting co-opted by the index fund managers who are pushing, even though it's not really their money and they're not active, they're pushing for these ESG uh, oriented investments. Um, I think when you look a step down or two steps down from a size perspective, I think that's kind of where it matters more rather than uh, European oil and gas companies or energy companies versus US ones. Josh, can I ask you, are you getting any pushback at all from uh, the uh, brokerages you deal with, whoever um, settles your trades, the the bank prop desk that you may work with? Are any of these large institutions pushing back at all and saying, Josh, you know, the hand of history is on your shoulder here. We're under pressure to disinvest from these assets there will come a point where we will have to take action against you. Is anybody saying this stuff to you? Well, our largest investor uh, pulled their money from the fund in November of last year. And, you know, there, there's been some news around kind of how we performed since then. And we did really well in the fourth quarter of last year. So I think there's kind of a question of uh, if you're in the business of making money or if you're in the business of kind of like virtue signaling. And I don't even think it's a moral thing because what we're doing is helping keep poor people fed and uh, warm in the winter and cold in the summer. And so I don't think it's really a moral thing. Uh, it's more of a question of like what you're trying to accomplish. So our brokers and counterparties and all of that, uh, I think they're well aligned with Bison. And I think they're just in business to make money as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not taking a moral position on it at all. I'm just fascinated about um, 
you know, every day we have somebody come on this channel from some worthy organization telling us that um, the future is ESG related and you need to be divesting of these assets. And if you are in them, they will become stranded assets that you will not have the liquidity to escape because ultimately they will become uninvestable. But from what you're saying, none of that's really taking place at the moment. Yeah, I mean, not only is it not taking place, if you look at the uh, calculations and assumptions that go into those sorts of statements, they're just wrong. And so we're seeing it with this energy crisis in Europe. We're seeing it with rising uh, prices for the uh, physical commodities. And I think we're just kind of seeing uh, the shift of the world and the shift of the global economy. And as things shift, sometimes people, I think, don't realize that the floor has shifted out from under them. And so I think a lot of the people that you're talking about, I think the floor has shifted already and there's still some momentum, but it's uneconomic momentum. And I think what we're seeing from an economic perspective is a revaluation up of oil and gas as commodities, as well as of the producers, uh, especially the ones that aren't essentially wasting their shareholders' money on these ventures that don't earn any profits. So my colleague here um, heats his home with uh, heating oil. I heat my home with gas. We're both very interested to know what the um, Northern European winter is going to mean for the prices that we pay. Josh, you buy and sell these assets. Have we peaked, do you think, on the headline energy price at this stage or is there more to come? I think that's really hard to say. And I like to joke that my short-term crystal ball is broken. So I don't really know exactly what the price will be, uh, but it's likely to be higher going forward than it was, let's say, a year, two, three years ago. So unfortunately, that bill is probably going to be high, but could it come down a little from here? Sure. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.